Please would you open your Bible to 1 Peter 3, verse 1 to 7. And tonight, um, in the series on marriage and family, I'm going to preach about unsaved spouses, unbelieving spouses and unbelieving husband or wife. 1 Peter 3, verse 1 to 7. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you, the great God of heaven and earth, the God of the universe, the creator of all things visible and invisible, the sustainer of life, upholding all things by the word of your power, and the giver of salvation through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We worship you, the Most High God, and I pray that this evening's sermon will not only be theory or some teaching, that it would move hearts to obedience and that it may even lead to the salvation of unbelieving husbands and unbelieving wives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a Jewish family in Hungary in Europe, the, the Safir family, and the husband especially was a very well-loved man among his fellow Jews and very devoted as a Jew. But then a preacher, a Scottish preacher, came to Hungary as a missionary. His name was John Duncan in the 1800s. And he preached the gospel, and he knew Hebrew very well, the Hebrew scriptures, and that really made an impression on on a man, the man called Israel, what a name for a Jew, Israel, Israel Safir, and his little boy, 11-year-old boy, Adolf. And both of them were converted at the same time. And his wife was quite shocked, Henrietta Safir, that her husband had now abandoned the Jewish faith and became, become a believer in Jesus Christ. But in due time, very soon, she too accepted Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And soon after that, the rest of the family followed. The whole family was converted. To put this in perspective, or to emphasize the point I'm trying to make, D.A. Carson is a Canadian theologian and preacher. And I heard him say in a sermon that they found this in Canada, in French-speaking Canada and Quebec, that when you evangelize women or children, it's only the wife that becomes a Christian and, or a, a child becomes a Christian and you've got this unbelieving husband and father. But when you evangelize the men and the father becomes a Christian, the husband, very soon the wife also is converted and then the family is converted, the whole family. And that is a biblical pattern. In the book of Acts, often you find when men are converted, he and his family, it says, were converted. He and his whole household believed. Uh, and contrast that with Timothy, for example, in Acts 16, verse 1, his father didn't believe. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, only the wife believed. Only Timothy's mother and grandmother believed, but the dad didn't. Where if the dad believes, if the husband believes, the whole family usually also follows in his footsteps because he's the leader of the house. 
And I, th that's what you find with the Safir family I spoke of earlier. The Safir family, the dad was saved and the rest of the family followed. And I, I know of quite a number of unbelieving wives, just to prove my point, and I guess you too, that you know of a number of unbelieving wives, uh, uh, no, let's put it the other way around, you know of a number of Christian women with unbelieving husbands, but you don't know of so many unbelieving wives and they've got Christian husbands. That, that is not as common. And so that is why Peter spends more time in teaching uh, women with unsaved husbands in this passage than the other way around. So how should, an, how should a woman act toward her unbelieving husband? And how must a man act toward his unbelieving wife? Now in the first place, Peter's not trying to say that you can marry an unbeliever. The bare fact that he has to write verses like these to help these poor Christians who are now stuck in a marriage with an unbeliever, the bare fact that he has to write this and help them shows that he's not encouraging you to get married to an unbeliever. And actually, Scripture forbids it. Deuteronomy 7 verse 3, 1 Corinthians 7 39, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 and 15 tells you not to marry unbelievers. So what Peter is doing here is rather he's writing to people who have been disobedient. Either they've been disobedient and they didn't obey God and they did get married to unbelievers and now they're stuck in this marriage. Or he might be writing to someone, the two unbelievers, they get married and then the one becomes a Christian. One gets converted and so what must the believer now do in such a marriage? Now according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, Verse 12 and 13, you shouldn't divorce the unbeliever. Don't get divorced. Unless the unbeliever wants to get divorced, and in that case, the Christian is now free to get remarried to a Christian. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. But if, if the unbeliever wants to get divorced, or doesn't want to get divorced at least, then that Christian should remain married to the non-Christian. And use that opportunity to win that unbeliever, that unbelieving spouse to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14. And that is also what Peter is referring to in these verses. So how do you do it? How do you win this unbelieving partner to the Lord? Alright, let's read first about point number one. Wives with unbelieving husbands. Verse 1 to 6. Likewise, wives. Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning, adorning means making yourself beautiful, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning, adorning be the hidden person of the heart which, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, with a small letter L, not capital. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
So first of all, what you're going to do as a wife with an unbelieving husband, be submissive. That's in verse 1. I remember my counselling professor taught us that when a husband and wife in marriage fight, and the husband shouts at his wife, what's going to happen? She's going to shout back, and he's going to shout more, and she'll shout louder. <laughs> and so the shouting match will continue. And it's like table tennis, he says, if you smash the ball, then the other guy has to move back further, and he'll smash it back. And you smash it, and he smashes it. The way to draw the guy nearer to you is play a drop shot. And the same in marriage. If your unbelieving husband snaps at you, the way to draw him nearer is play a drop shot. Answer gently. Don't shout back. Proverbs 15 verse 1. A gentle answer will calm him, will quiet him, will... What, what's the word? Soothe the anger. And it works, it works. Uh, J. Adams speaks of a man who came for counseling um, because his wife came and she says, she said to him, I want to I submit to you. And he started coming for counseling and he said, wow, I want to start working on my marriage. That really, it was the drop shot that drew him closer. And that's what Peter has in mind here. And so that's why Peter says to the woman in verse 1, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Be subject, even if he doesn't obey the word it says. Be subject, submit to your unsaved husband. And the Greek word there is in a continuous tense. It means keep on submitting to this husband. Now, how, how do you do this? How do you do this? How do you submit to a husband who's not interested in the word? He's not interested in God's word. He doesn't read the Bible. On his own. He doesn't read it with you. He doesn't read the Bible to the children. He doesn't have family worship. He doesn't even have a desire to come to church to a worship service to hear the word preached. And even if he does come to church or he does read his Bible, he doesn't apply it in his life. He doesn't obey it. Verse 1. Uh, it speaks of some of these husbands, they don't obey the word. Now, they're the kinds of husbands, they live disobedient lives. They are passive leaders. They sit in front of the TV all the time. Or they're on the golf course all the time. Or they're always with their friends. They're not with their wife. And maybe this, this husband, he swears at you. And he speaks down on you. Maybe he drinks too much. Uh, now Peter, Peter is not saying that you should accept his sin. Or you should agree with his sin. But what Peter is saying is, that if in spite of this disobedient behavior of your husband, if in spite of all this, you treat him with respect, you might just, you might just win him for the Lord. Verse 1. Even if some of these husbands don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So therefore, be respectful to your husband. Show respect. Even if he is ill-mannered, um, even if he doesn't deserve your respect, show respect, because that's what the Lord commands you to do, and you want to honor God, right? And in the end, it's not your words that's going to win your husband to, to the Lord. It's your deeds. 
Verse 1, that your husband might be one without a word by the conduct of his wife. Now that doesn't mean you never share the gospel, because that's the way we get saved, we hear the gospel and believe it. It doesn't mean you never share the gospel, but it means that your life, the way you live must be the light that draws him to the Lord. Your life must be the letter that he reads. Your life must be the Bible that he reads. And so don't try and catch him, as J. Adam says, in an evangelical trap. Don't try and catch him with us in, in, a, in some trap, uh, some gospel trap. And you, you're constantly playing sermons in the background and Christian music in the background and you nag him every week, come, with, come, to, me on, come to church with me on Sunday and you nag him, please come with, with me, we need to go for counseling and, and you're bombarding him with Christian WhatsApp messages and uh, you read the Bible in front of him on purpose and you, read, you pray so loud that he can hear you praying. Uh, that's not the way you're going to win your husband to the Lord. Rather, what's going to happen is you're going to put your unbelieving husband off the gospel. You're going to put him off. You're not going to draw him to the Lord. If you want to win your husband to the Lord, you need to be a good wife. By being a good wife, by your good character, that's something you cannot ignore. All right, question. What if your husband, he sleeps with other women and he beats you? When he's had too much alcohol and he takes the money and he goes and gambles out all the money and there's no food for you and the children. Well, in the case of adultery, uh, come to the elders of the church and talk to us because Matthew 19 verse 9 says you are allowed to get divorced if there is sexual sin. Or if your husband beats you up, then you go to the police. Or if he gambles out all your money, all the money, and he doesn't care and he doesn't care for you and the children and there's no food to eat and you come to the church and you sp speak to us you speak to your husband very kindly and gently and you speak to the leaders and we'll help you with food and then also it might be a case of 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, where your unbelieving husband has deserted the marriage and there is biblical grounds for divorce but if your husband's just an unbeliever, he's just a plain old unbeliever, he's not cheating on you, he doesn't beat you, but he's an unbeliever, then you should do what Peter tells you in verse 1. And then another thing you should do is verse 2, be faithful. I remember a Christian woman telling me how she, how she was tempted by being in love with, with Christian men, with godly Christian men who, who treat their wives in a godly way. She was really impressed with him. Look at how nice they treat their wives. And I, my husband, well, he's not good for me. And he doesn't treat me nicely. Um, hmm, you see, if a, if a Christian wife, if she has an ill-mannered, bad-mannered husband, and he's not interested in God or Christianity... It can very easily happen that she starts seeking the attention of Christian men who treat her kindly, who love talking about the Lord, and she would rather be with these Christian men than be with her own husband. Or she becomes jealous. She grows jealous of Christian women uh, who are married to Christian men, and look at that Christian wife. She doesn't know what she has. 
and she doesn't appreciate her Christian husband. She's disrespectful to him. And then you start becoming bitter. And you think of, you start daydreaming about how would you, how you would be such a good wife for this man. How you'll be a much better wife than that Christian woman is. And so because your heart is not with your own husband, though he's an unbeliever, your heart is not with your own husband, he starts, he starts thinking, oh, this is what happens to women when they become Christians. They're not loyal and faithful to their husbands anymore. And exactly the opposite of what you want to happen happens. He's not drawn to Jesus, he's put off. And so that is why Peter says to Christian wives, you must be pure and respect your husbands. Verse 2, when, when this unbelieving husband, when he sees your respectful and pure conduct. And so by doing this, by being pure, you can win him to the Lord. Especially if, if your conduct, the way you live, if it shows, if you show by your, your actions to this husband, you show him, I don't have eyes for any other man, I belong to you alone. And to show that you really mean this, don't withhold your body from your husband when it comes to sexual relations. Fulfill your husband's sexual desires. Even if he's an unbeliever, fulfill his sexual desires and that will also help you to remain pure as verse 2 tells you to. So you're not tempted with other men. And then also if, you, if you're going to act right as a Christian wife with an unbelieving husband, then you need to be modest. Be modest. Verse 3 verse 6a. I don't know if you saw this recently of a, an American Baptist preacher in the States uh, or American in the States. <laughs> so this American preacher, a Baptist guy, Stuart Allen Clark, he preached a sermon about uh, how husbands, they want attractive women. And so according to his sermon, everything is about the externals, about what the woman looks like. She should be attractive. She should be Thin, she should lose weight and she should be pretty and she should be uh, satisfying sexually and so all was about that and that caused great uproar on social media well Peter says that pastor is wrong uh, according to Peter Christian women should focus on inward beauty not outward beauty that's in verse 3 and 4 and so it's not about your body it's not about your hair not about your clothes because you want to show off to people around you. No, it's about modesty. Modesty. In other words, doing your best to have modest character, good character, gentle character. Verse 3 and 4. Don't let your adorning, you're making yourself beautiful, be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 1 Timothy 1, or 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 and 10. Likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable clothing, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold pearls, or costly clothing, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. That does not mean that Scripture is against outward beauty. There were many beautiful people in the Bible, people with nice, nice clothes who were committed believers, like Sarah was a beautiful woman, or the Proverbs 31 woman, wears nice clothes. So the Bible's not against outward beauty, but that shouldn't be your priority. What does it help you? Very pretty. 
but you've got a rotten character. As Douglas Wilson said, it's like a camel with lipstick. What does that help? So give more time, give more time to the word and prayer and gathering with believers and doing good works. Give more time to those things than you do to the hairdresser, the salon, the gym, the clothing store, or the diet, or time in front of the mirror. So make, make certain that you have a beautiful heart. Because outward beauty is going to disappear. You're going to get old and wrinkled and going to get gray hair and you're going to die. Outward beauty disappears, but inward beauty is forever. It's imperishable, verse 4. Imperishable beauty. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is vain. A woman who fears the Lord should be praised. Proverbs 31, verse 30, or 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. The outward man is fading away. The inward man is being renewed day by day. So what does this inward beauty look like? Well, you see it in a, in a wife when she is gentle and quiet and calm and composed and peaceful. Um, she's got that kind of character. Uh, that's the kind of woman she's filled with the Spirit. She's like Jesus. Uh, verse 4 speaks of a gentle and quiet spirit. Jesus was gentle and quiet, according to Matthew 11. And the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and peace. And so that's the kind of woman that God wants. Uh, it's not fitting for a woman to be loud and bombastic and to shout at her husband. No, a strong woman is not one who is loud and who can control her husband. A strong woman is one who is gentle and patient and quiet. She can, she can control herself. She can control her emotions. And in God's sight, that is much more value than a woman with expensive clothing and jewels, verse 4. It says it's very precious in God's sight, end of verse 4. More precious than jewels. So rather, rather than aim, aim at being attractive for the Lord, which means inward attraction, than having outward attraction. Aim for inward beauty. Even if your husband doesn't get saved through that, leave your husband's salvation in God's hands. You just do what God tells you to. That is what holy woman did. The holy woman who hoped in God. That's what the holy woman who hoped in God did throughout history. Verse 5. This is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. You know, we, we forget about the woman who, who focused on external beauty. Where are they in history? You've forgotten about them. The role models are those who had character. Ruth and Hannah and Abigail and Elizabeth in, in Luke 1 and Mary Magdalene and, and Mary who sat at Jesus' feet in Luke 10 and Priscilla in the letters of Paul and Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards and Florence Nightingale and women in our church with good character. Those are the women you remember and they, they especially make an impression on you if you see how they respect their husbands, how they submit to their husbands. End of verse 5. These women adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Think of Sarah, for instance, in verse 6. She obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. <clears throat> and that's from Genesis 18, verse, verse 6 and verse 12 and verse 19. You, you see how Sarah obeyed Abraham when he taught to the Scriptures. Genesis 18, 19. He taught his family. Um, 
the truth about God, at least there was no written Bible yet, but the truth about God, or Genesis 18.12, she referred to him as my Lord, small letter L. Or Genesis 12 verse 5, she moved with him when he went to a strange country, she followed him. Or in Genesis chapter 18 verse 6, he asked her, please will you prepare something for my guests? And she did. Now, when, when Peter says that she called Abraham Lord, Peter's not trying to tell you you need to give a title to your husband, call him your majesty or something of the sort. What Peter means is that you should respect your husband even in the way you talk to him. Respect your husband. And, and many, many wives don't do this. They oppose their husband's leadership and they try to tell their husbands what to do and they speak to their husbands as if they are children. And the Bible says it shouldn't be like that. Submit to your husband as Sarah submitted to Abraham. It says she obeyed Abraham. That's what it means to be modest. Not only in the way you dress, but in your character. Be modest. And then also, verse 6b, if you're going to be the right kind of wife for your unbelieving husband, you must be God-fearing. Verse 6b. Um, my friend Seth Myers, the missionary, uh, his blog, the name of his blog is Son of Carey. Carey William Carey was a, a missionary in the late 1700s into the 1800s in India. Now, Seth is not really the son of William Carey. He means it spiritually because he too has a heart for missions <clears throat> like William Carey did. And so that's exactly what Peter means when he calls these women, uh, he calls them, you are Sarah's children if you do what is good. You are fair, Sarah's children. In other words, spiritual children of Sarah. Just like Sarah submitted to Abraham and she focused on a good character, so if you do that, you are daughters of Sarah, like we are all children of Abraham, if we believe in Christ. Galatians 3 verse 7. And this is the kind of woman, she's not scared by threats. She's not afraid of anything that is frightening. Verse 6 at the end. What does this mean? It means that she's, she's not like, like the women who say that if I submit to my unbelieving husband, he will misuse me he will take liberty and he will oppress me. So I can't submit to an unbelieving husband. No, you're not afraid of submitting. Because you fear God, you do what he tells you and you leave the consequences in God's able hands. You do what he tells you and you submit to your husband even though he's an unbeliever. Now it can also mean that this woman, she doesn't fear anything that's frightening. That can mean that she, she doesn't fear people's opinions. She's not afraid of other women's opinions when other people, other women tell her, divorce him, divorce him, don't submit to him. No, because she fears God, this wife, she submits to her husband. And she's not even afraid if she has a bad husband. No, she's rather afraid, not of her husband, but for her husband. She's afraid because she knows that God will cast her husband into hell. And therefore she pities her husband rather than being afraid of him. 
Okay, that's that's number one. Number two, that was uh, wives with unbelieving husbands. Now, husbands with unbelieving wives. That's in verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they, that is your wives, are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, if you're going to be the right kind of husband for this unbelieving woman, first of all, be understanding. I remember my, my grandfather used to say that when I was a child, and I never knew what it meant. That is a very understanding thing you did there, my boy. What does my grandfather mean? Well, what Peter means by being understanding, it means be considerate. Be considerate. Don't be a steamroller. Don't steamroller your wife. Don't bulldoze your wife. And in the context, he's speaking to husbands who have unbelieving wives. How do I know it? Because verse 7 starts with the word, likewise. Verse 3, or 3 verse 1, likewise wives. And now, 3 verse 7, likewise husbands. The whole context here, actually the end of chapter 2 also, is about unbelievers, the oppression of unbelievers. And so now, likewise husbands. In other words, just like, the, just like wives with unbelieving husbands, so husbands with unbelieving wives should do dot dot dot. So the Christian husband shouldn't be like the unbelieving husband of verse 1. No, verse 7 says he must be understanding. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And if you're going to do that, then you need to talk to your wife, men. You need to talk to your wife. You need to visit with your wife. Don't sit in front of the TV all the time, or be at work all the time, or be with your friends all the time. You need to talk to your wife. What is your wife like? What doesn't she like? What are your, her strong points and her weak points? What frustrates her? What does she struggle with? Where does she need your help? What worries her? And so on. Live with her in an understanding way. Know your wife. And then also, husbands, be respectful. Now, you work rough. You play rough. You treat a rugby ball roughly. You can kick it. You can throw it. You can bounce it. You can pass it. But you don't do so with a crisp crystal vase or crystal vase. You are very gentle with it and very careful with it. And that is how you should treat your wife. Not like a rugby ball, but like a crystal vase. Work gently with her. And not roughly with your wife. Now, if you work gently with your wife, verse 7, she's the weaker vessel, show honor. Uh, that doesn't mean she's weak. She's weaker in some sense, but it doesn't mean you have a weak person. It rather means you work gently with her because you've got a very valuable person. Uh, that's what it means, show honor to her. The Greek word there literally means um, that, that you put a prize on something. It's like you, uh, 
You've, you place a great value on something. And so you, you treat your wife like a valuable item. Especially because verse 7 says she's the weaker vessel. In many, in many instances, in most instances, instances, women are weaker physically and emotionally than men. And so don't use your strength, husband, to hurt your wife. Use your strength to protect your wife, to honor your wife. Show respect by getting up immediately when she walks into the lounge with a tray with coffee and tea. And you get up and take the tray from her. You, if she's carrying something heavy, you take it from her. You rush to take it and you carry whatever is heavy. And you speak to her kindly and nicely and you hold her. You hold your wife in your arms, not just because you want sex, but you hold her in your arms just because you can do so and you want to show her that I love you and I'm here to protect you. And you tell her that she's beautiful and attractive and you show that she's number one in the way you spend your time and many other things. You show honor to your wife. And then you also treat her as your equal. Although you're her leader, in terms of value, she's your equal. She's a, a, a fellow heir or a co-heir of the grace of life. Verse 7. Now, if you're speaking about a Christian wife, that would mean that she has the same eternal life you do. And she has it by faith in Christ, just like you do. Galatians 3.28, in that sense, there's no, no longer man or woman in Christ. But if we're talking about an unbeliever here, and I think that's what the context shows, then the grace of life refers to the gift of life. The, the grace of life. This is a very special gift God has given us in life. And that grace of life is marriage. God has given us this wonderful gift. And so what Peter means then is that your wife is not your slave. She's not your slave. She's your teammate. You should treat her as a team player in marriage. A co-heir, an heir of the grace of life. And so do things. If she's your equal in marriage, your teammate in marriage, do things with her and, and give time to your wife. And if you do so, you might just win her to the Lord. But if you come down hard on your wife, it doesn't matter how much you pray for her to be saved, you will put her off the gospel. Because the way you treat your wife, in that case then, it just works against your prayers. You're treating her harshly. And yet verse 7 says, your prayers will be hindered. In other words, you're praying for her salvation, but you treat her harshly, how she's gonna how she gonna turn to the gospel? You're working against yourself here. And the Lord won't hear your prayer because you you're a hypocrite. You say that you have a relationship with the Lord, but you don't even consider your your own wife. And how can you say you love your wife whom you can see, or you uh, you you love the Lord whom you can't see, but here's your wife, you can't see her and you don't even love her? Your prayers will be hindered. So do you realize how important it is to live righteously and uprightly if you are married to an unbeliever? It's not only important because you want to win the unbeliever to the Lord, but because you want to honor God. And yet, and yet, it often happens that if you live righteously and uprightly with an unsaved spouse, that you often win them to the Lord. That's what happened to an author called Lee Strobel. 
He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Some of you might have seen the movie. I saw the movie and I read the book. Um, but Lee Strobel with an, was an atheist, and his wife was an atheist. And they raised their child as an atheist. Uh, when the kid was still small, Lee's wife, Leslie is her name, she became a Christian, and she really tried to apply 1 Peter 3. Uh, it was very difficult. Lee mocked the gospel, he mocked Jesus, he mocked church, but she really tried to apply. She wasn't always successful, but she did her best to try and apply 1 Peter 3, and God eventually saved her husband. And my sincere prayer for you is, if there's anyone like that here tonight, that God will do the same for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is my prayer right now, that for those Christian women with unbelieving husbands, you would use their testimony and example to draw their husbands to you. And for those husbands with unbelieving wives, that you would do the same and save their wives. And that you would get the glory when the gospel light shines brightly and clearly through your people in the way we live before unbelievers. For your glory and honor. Amen.